0: The Women of Ill Repute with your hosts Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. I have a burning question, Wendy, for this week's uh, guest, Amanda Marshall. I have a burning question, and I can't wait to ask her.
1: Amanda, um, I remember her. She was, she was, is that like she's the singer songwriter. She she sold like millions of albums back in the nineties, and uh, and then she kind of she just disappeared. What happened? So
0: is that the question? Are you going to ask her? No? No. I want to ask her how long it takes to dry her hair. This is something I've wanted to ask for years. She's got this magnificent (laughs) head of hair. And I had a roommate in university who had similar hair and because it's curly. She couldn't blow dry it. Uh, She had to let it air dry. And it would take her three days. Like three days later, she'd say, like, feel... And it would still be damp. So that's my burning question for Amanda Marshall. About um, you? I
1: think that's very shallow. <laughs> 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 but, but I'm glad that you're asking it because, yeah, it's hard not to notice her. She has great. We have like no hair and she's got she's got yeah. she has yeah. magnificent hair.
0: Yeah. And I'll bet that Amanda, who's actually standing by right now, would probably like to talk about something other than where have you been for the last 20 years, but we, we will ask her about that. She is back, not that she ever left, but she's back in the spotlight with a new album. It's called Heavy Lifting and uh, a new cross-country tour with a, with stops at Massey Hall and a new single called I Hope She Cheats with a Basketball Player, which is very specific.
1: Yeah, you know, it's the uniforms. I don't know the basketball players; they've just never done it for me. I'm more of a more of a like a fireman, you know, with the suspenders and the the uniforms. They just
0: (laughs) (laughs) cliche. All right. Okay. All right. Marshall here with us. Hi, Amanda. Why do I feel like I know you?
2: Because <laughs> you've seen me relentlessly or heard me relentlessly on the radio all these years. I want to hear more about uh, Wendy's obsession with farmers. <laughs> yeah, I
0: know. This is new to me. We've been doing this for a while and the <laughs>
2: suspenders.
0: Yeah,
1: no, I got to move on. But yeah, the hair. Oh my God, you have beautiful, beautiful hair. It's like... Oh, thank you. Yeah, everyone says they don't get it cut in uh, during COVID, but but wow.
2: How long does it take to dry? I Listen, I I heard what I heard what you said about your roommate. I feel her pain. I'm I'm right there with her. Yeah. I'm an air dry, I'm an air dry girl too. So it takes a while.
0: So in the winter you can't really go out for a couple of days cuz your hair would f- Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> the pain is real. The pain is real. All right, Amanda, we're going to you've been doing a fair amount of publicity. It's so nice to have you back. Everybody's asking the same question. We would be remiss if we didn't. So let's all
2: say, let's all say it together. All right.
0: What What
2: happened? happened? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the short answer is the short answer is that I, uh, I 20 years ago, I was coming off my third tour, my third, for my third album, we were coming out of that tour cycle and I got into a business, I don't know if anybody, a business dispute, but I don't know if anybody's ever been divorced, but it's kind of like a business divorce when You can't, you know, you can't split. You just can't, you know, somebody just won't let go. And the longer answer is it was just a shakedown that lasted for about a decade. And I wouldn't capitulate. And it just kept going on and on and on and on and on. And it sort of became this chronic distraction that sucked in everything else around it. And the reason I didn't put out any new music is because it was clear to me that whatever I was going to do was going to get sucked into this kind of vortex. And I just didn't want that. So I just waited it out. The other thing is, you know, this seems very sudden to a lot of people, but, you know, I was just playing the long game. I went to the tall grass. A very long day. A very long day. But yeah, I mean, I always, I, there was some question as to whether I would put out music publicly again, but I was always making music. I was always writing music. I always had this record in the back of my mind and I would pull it out and put it away. And then when it was ready, we had the pandemic, so I figured nobody was really, you know, waiting, waiting for it. So I thought, well, let's wait until everything really calms down and everybody can feel safe going out again and I can feel good about being out in public. And that's what we did. So everything happens for, you know, the right time. So
1: you're like Taylor Swift. That, that That's her name, right?
2: <laughs> that's. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so.
1: So it was a business dispute.
2: Yeah, it was just – it was a manager who I just couldn't – it was – I mean – it's hard to, there's no good sexy answer for it, but it was just I split with my manager and he wouldn't let go. And it just dragged on right. and on and on and on and on. And it was sort of like trying to be in a divorce with somebody who won't divorce you and says, Well, you know, it maybe if you give me this, 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 and there was, you know, but but I still really want to be in your life. And you just wanna break up. And that was uh, it was incredibly frustrating. It was, at the beginning, I thought the worst thing that had ever happened to me, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. Professionally, creatively, personally, it forced me to really grow up and learn to cope. And I think that's why a lot of people, a lot of entertainers in particular, get kind of sucked into this, um, they kind of go off the rails. Because once you have every obstacle in your life kind of taken out of your way, there's a necessary infrastructure that springs up around you when you do my job. And once you take that infrastructure away, it can be really hard to cope. It can be hard to pay your own bills and make your own decisions and hire your own people and do all that kind of stuff. So that in and of itself is a huge learning curve. And I'm so happy that I really got to you know, learn those life skills.
0: You also had the wherewithal to do that. Like the way just listening to you and and reading the interviews that you've done recently, I think it's been a real privilege to be able to step away rather than, you know, the tragedy some people might have suspected that it's really, you know, well, I hear I hear things. But to be able to step away from your life the way or your professional life the way that you did, it's not something everybody can do, but you make it seem like it's not a bad thing to do if
2: you can't. Well, it was, you know, it, it, I'm not going to lie, it was it was traumatic at the beginning because we were, you know, I was I was sort of on a roll and it really nobody anticipates that something like this is going to take that long. So in the beginning it was like, well, yeah, this will be resolved in 6 months and I'll be back, I'll make another record and I'll be back out on the road. Once it became clear that it was dragging on and on and on and on, you really do kind of you start to lose your own personal momentum, you start to lose momentum within the industry and people are kind of like, well, You know, what's going on? Why aren't you out? Why haven't you made another record? It's funny. I was saying, I've been telling this story that one of the things that really kind of kicked me in the ass to kind of get me back uh, in the studio and finish the record was in 2017, a friend of mine who's a, a record producer in the US said to me, You know, you're too young to retire and you're too good not to try. What are you doing? Get out there. Don't waste your gift. And That really kind of was the catalyst to make me um, pick up the momentum to get back in the studio to finish the album. But it's funny because he was the same guy who held kind of an intervention to say, you got to stop this with this other dude right? Which was the thing that kind of got me off the road in the first place. So I was like, dude, make up your mind. Like, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. So you stayed home. Like, apparently,
1: like, I, I think you've written about sitting in the closet and writing songs and you were, you were still performing in the closet. Um, and you learned how to cook and you have a longtime partner. I mean, there, like, what has life been, been like? I mean, and you must be a great cook because it's been 20
0: years.
2: <laughs> yeah. What have you been doing? <laughs> i'm a i'm like i'm an okay cook i'm a big believer that like you know food is love and it's nurturing and all that kind of stuff and i like to and the truth of the matter is i really like to eat and i like to eat well so nobody else was going to do it so i kind of figured it out but and i'm not i'm not a great cook i am like i always say everything i make is like one step below making it correctly but it's it tastes good but like if, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I'm not a great cook, but uh, as I said, a lot of this stuff was just, it was just life. It was just learning how to, how to live, how to, you know, I I bought an apartment and I decorated my apartment and I was, I finally, I finally had pets, you know, I finally got to get a dog and all of that kind of stuff that, I mean, this sounds, sounds kind of snobbish, but all the stuff that people in regular jobs, people with regular lives um, learn as they mature into adulthood Was kind of, I was kind of a late bloomer. So I did all that stuff. I'm not somebody who travels a lot when I'm not working because it's part of my job. So I'm out there all the time. So that wasn't, it wasn't like, oh my God, suddenly I want to go to France. But just the sort of everyday routine, developing an everyday routine and learning how to be an adult was a huge thing for me. Huge. You just turned 50. 50. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: I remember 50. (laughs) <laughs> I remember somebody saying to me, don't waste the rest of your life wishing you were the decade you were before, and, and so and so forth, and so on. But having said that, especially in your business, in the music industry, as a woman, coming back now, it's your runway has shortened. I mean, you'd already taken off in the 90s, and then disappearing is dangerous for anybody, but you're now back as a 50-year-old woman, highly accomplished, highly recognized, but still... You know, you're up against the teenagers out there.
2: No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Because my, uh, you know... The, the one thing that I wanted to make sure of with this record and the one thing that where we've really succeeded is that this record is not chasing anything. I'm not up against Katy Perry or Dua Lipa or Taylor Swift or any of those people. They have their niche and they do what they do. I don't know how to make those records and they don't know how to make these kinds of records. I'm in a separate lane. And I think that you have to trust the audience to know what's real and what's authentic to them, Right. You know, a lot of people have said to me, "Look, so what does it feel like that people are bringing their kids to your shows now?" It feels great. What are you kidding me? (laughs) People would kill for that kind of, you know, longevity and that kind of lasting impact on people's lives. These songs have had lasting impact on people's lives, and they're sharing them with their families, and they bring them with their kids. And when I go to a Rolling Stones show, those are the people who are standing around me. When you go see Foo Fighters, those are the people who are at those shows because those bands have. They have made a lasting impact and they have grown with their audience. You know, Springsteen always says you have to make a choice between uh, like if the audience doesn't age with you, you can't keep reinventing yourself for 14 year olds. That's not how any business works. 14 year olds find other 14 year olds. So I'm not chasing any kind of trend at all. But what about you? I mean, it must be different. I mean, last time you were
1: on stage and uh, like big time. Uh, was the '90s, and you were in your 20s. So, I mean, other than the drugs and sex and rock and roll, I mean, how how different is it? It must be must be different to be on stage now, or it's, maybe not. For
2: me, it's. Um, I mean, f- physically, I don't feel any different. I mean, like knock wood, I don't like. I'm healthy, and I don't feel any different. Um, for me, the overall experience is better because it's. It, I, it's funny the first the first real uh, run of shows that we did. Prior to this record coming out was in 2017. We did a, um, a run of I think it was seven or ten shows in the summer of 2017, and we had so it was sort of a test run, and it was so much fun. And I turned to my agent and I was like, you know, this is really the first time that this kind of feels like our thing, which is weird because it's my thing, but it really felt like my thing. We had planned it and put it all together, and I had been in charge of making those really crucial decisions. And that's really where what it feels like now with this album and with the tour and everything. I just feel like, I mean, I don't want to sound like you know Janet Jackson in the early '80s, but it there is an element of like control that is very satisfying and that really makes you look at everything differently.
0: You are such an accomplished songwriter as well as a hell of a singer, so curious as to why your your first single from the new album is a a cover i mean it's a fantastic cover but it's not
2: your song i mean you you made it yours but a lot of people asked me that and a lot of people on my team were sort of like well should this be the first single because you wrote the rest of the record this, the, the reason I wanted to put it out first was because Marsha Ambrosius wrote the song. Marsha, if you don't know, was half of Floetry, which was a really successful R&B duo out of the UK in the early, I guess the early 2000s. And their uh, their stuff was, I mean, she her stuff is very, very different. She recorded the song, um, I think in 2011 on her record. And I heard the song by accident several years later. I missed it on its first release. And when I heard the song, I was so struck by the humor of it, because you're right, it's very specific. And the specificity makes it hilarious. I hope she cheats on you with a basketball player. To me, it was the most sort of clever, brutal, vicious, but really funny kind of takedown. And I want and it made me, as a lyricist, go back and kind of re-examine all of the other songs on the record. And I thought, you know, because I have a tendency to be very earnest as a writer, and I thought... I really want to inject some of that kind of off-the-cuff humor. Because in life, I'm not like that at all. So I thought, I really want to, um, I want to get closer to that. And, and because it was the catalyst, I thought, because it set the tone for everything else, I really think it should be the lead-off single. It kind of encapsulates what the rest of the record is about. It's a rock take on an r and b song. It's a, it's a soul lyric, but with a kind of a, a rock and roll, against a rock and roll backdrop. And that's what the rest of the record sounds like. So I really wanted it to be a complete kind of picture in the first single.
0: You and Wendy are both aspiring to be lighter and funnier.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're very funny off air.
0: We're hello. Oh (laughs) my God. (laughs) Uh, but you have something else in common. You're both only.
2: So. Oh, are you an only child?
0: Yeah, yeah, ah, yeah. No, my parents that. were together for a year, and then
1: she never remarried. So oh, wow. this is it. Wow. Yeah, congratulations. Yes. <laughs> do you remember yeah, no, Do you
2: remember Vicky Gabbro? Yes. So years ago, I was in Vancouver, and I did Vicki Gabbro's show, and she's an only child, too. And as we were going off the air in the first sight, we were going to commercial. She turned to me, and she said... Uh, uh, you're an only child. I said, yeah. She said, oh, me too. She said, what do you, how do you like it? I said, I love it. What are you kidding? I said, it's fantastic. I got, like, you know, mountains of Christmas presents and all the attention I could want. It was fantastic. And she said, yeah. She said, uh, wait until you're an adult. She said, it's, it's different when you're an adult, mm-hmm. being an only child caring for your parents. I'm lucky. I'm not at that. I'm not at that point, but I sort of, I sort of see like, I see what she meant, but that I remember that being really. Um, sort of traumatic for me. She was the first person who had ever said that to me. And I was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? It's
1: (laughs) so true. That's, yeah, we, we, I'm an only child who has an only child and uh, had her late. And so she's going to have like both of us in diapers to look after (laughs) Uh, me looking after just my mom. I was like, where are all the siblings? (laughs) Siblings, please step up. Whereas, When I was a kid, like you, I so loved being an only child. And she had a serious boyfriend at one point and said, so uh, he wants to get married, should I marry him? And I was like, you mean more babies? No, that wouldn't be good for me. (laughs) Like, it's such a selfish thing. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the right guy. It's funny because my mother
2: is the last of 12. Whoa. And it's funny because watching her, uh, they're mostly passed away now. So it's not really you know, it's not really that different of a circumstance. She, it's just she, her and I think an older sister left. So, it, I mean, it's not that much different really. And she, you know, lives, uh, has lived most of her life away from them on the other side of the world. They were all kind of spread out. She's from Trinidad. So she moved to Canada and she was the only one who moved to Canada. They all moved to different parts. Some are in the U S somewhere in, in back in Trinidad, somewhere in Britain. So, it's not that different, really. You know, she's still kind of coked on her own. The Women of Ill Repute. So, Amanda,
0: I, I, how to put this elegantly, I didn't realize that you so your mother's from Trinidad. Your father is white. I did not know this. And I think a lot of people were unaware. And in the last five years, being black has been a <clears throat> transformative uh, situation for a lot of people and i'm wondering how how do you feel about that do are, are people saying you know what we should focus on that part of your musical or cultural heritage or what or what has it just has it made a
2: difference uh, not really i mean i mean certainly i've had more conversations like everybody about but everybody has had more conversations about race probably in the last 3 or 4 years than I've ever had in my own, you know, my whole life. And my mother and I, in particular, have had more conversations like that than I've ever had with her before. Mostly because I grew up in a... First of all, I grew up in in the the early part of my childhood was in the 70s, which was a very... I went to a very progressive private school where there was a hugely diverse um, student population. And honestly, race was never an issue. It was so diverse that we never... Talked about it. There was another kid in my class whose mom was black and his dad was white. There was a kid in my class whose mom was Chinese and his mom's dad was Latino. So we didn't really. There were there were uh, kids with physical handicaps in my class as well. So it was a very diverse kind of um, circumstance for me at school. Um, then we moved to the East Coast. We moved to Halifax when I was 11, and we spent three or four years there. And that was a change to me because not only was I coming from a different kind of um, uh, cultural perspective in terms of diversity, it was, it was a very, there was a huge lack of diversity in the school that I went to. And I found that really shocking. I just was like, where are all the people who kind of look like me? It was kind of strange. Um, For me, it, it has always been race was never an issue. Culture was an issue that showed itself mostly through food because the food that I grew up eating a lot of was the food that my mother cooked. And sometimes, not always, but she would make things that I knew my friends weren't eating. So I grew up eating stuff like buljal and roti and doubles and callaloo and all that stuff. And those dishes were normal to me. They were very, uh, you know, beloved, they were things I looked forward to. The stuff she made me on my birthday, she still makes it for me on my birthday. And that's the way it manifested itself. Musically speaking, never came up. Certainly in in the industry though, it absolutely came up and it showed itself over and over and over again. And one of the reasons that I don't talk about it a lot is because I have always considered this to be kind of my superpower. People show themselves. People show themselves in rooms when they think they're alone. And that has always been a hugely valuable asset to me. People will, people will, people will say things to you about you, about other people in front of you that they would not say uh, if they knew who you were. Um, so there's
1: stories here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there are tons of stories. I feel weird talking about it because, like, if I looked like Alicia Keys, we'd be having a different conversation. You know what I mean? I feel like. I've had, I have certainly not had a a difficult ride and I'm very, very aware of that. And people throw around words like privilege and colorizing and colorism. I don't, I just, I know who I am and I know what kind of a life that I've had, but I also know That there are a lot of euphemisms that people, I don't know if they still do, but there were a lot of euphemisms that people used in the music business and in the entertainment business at large when I was coming up. One of them was urban, right? Well, she's an urban artist. What does that mean? Urban? (laughs) You go downtown a lot. (laughs) Yeah, like I go downtown, exactly. You're an urban artist. And there was a huge separation between, you know, urban artists and rock artists and you know you can't cross over from one to the other i never paid attention to it i'll tell you a funny story though i was in in the late 90s we were on a european tour opening for simply red remember simply red oh i love simply red yeah so we were we had opened we had spent like two or three months opening for them and we were finishing that tour and we got an offer to open for Whitney Houston who i mean i you know, worshipped as a kid. And I literally was like, whatever you have to do, you know, get me on this tour. So we secured the tour, but we had a break in between the two tours. So we were taking, we, we, it didn't make sense to come home. So we just spent some time in Europe. It was like a week. So one of those nights, there was a big label dinner and it was me and two other now very famous artists that I'm not going to say who it was. But, and a bunch of like executives and we all went out for dinner. So we're at the dinner and after the dinner, one of the executives who I did not know well, we were sort of chit-chatting after the dinner and he said, um, "So what are you doing next?" And I said, "Oh, we're, we're, we're going out with Houston. I'm so excited." And he said, "Oh, are you, are you really sure that that's the right place for you?" And I said, yeah. "What? Yes, why?" And he said, well, you know, those audiences, they generally prefer their own, Amanda. And it didn't register with me right away because I, I sort of was like, does he mean like rock artists? Like, huh? But the funny thing was, five minutes after I had that conversation, I went and I sat at a table with one of the other musical artists who was there who happened to be a black American artist. And this person says to me, what are you doing next? I said, I'm going on tour with Whitney Houston. And they said, Oh my God, you're going to do great. Pretty little white girl like you, they're going to eat you right up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like,
0: Perfect. Isn't it amazing that me- the music industry, which has both enabled artists of all different colors to transcend, is also one of the most restrictive? Sure. As well. Yeah,
2: but that's true of every part of the anime. That's probably yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah,
1: um, so you're back. I'm, I'm just, what is it? What is it like? I mean, you've, 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 you have you're, you're, I like think Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, and, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, she's back, she's back. It's just so amazing. It's so cool, and and your song is so cool, and. But I mean, what's, what's it like? Like, do you still like, do you have to gear yourself up? How are you? Are Is it wonderful? Is it terrifying?
2: <laughs> no, it's not terrifying. And it's not, you know, people keep asking me what my expectations were. I had no expectations. I really didn't. I did not have, not because I didn't know what to expect, but just because I think probably cause I'd been away for so long and I really, really love the record so much that I sort of, didn't care what people thought. I was like, I I just love this. And I've been listening to it so long that it seems like the norm to me. I I am shocked by the reception. I really am though. I'm shocked by the amount of um, enthusiasm and the letters and the emails and the text messages that I'm getting are freaking me out. It's amazing. And
1: I. So are you going to be like the Stones? Are you going to be like a, you know, a (laughs) thousand and twelve?
2: At
0: this point now, it's going to be, yeah.
2: Why not? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I mean, you know, everybody, everybody, I think people put a lot of focus on your age and your race and your sex and your gender and all this. I mean, you know, I I write songs in my pajamas and I go out and sing them for people. I'm not breaking rocks. Right. And I really, truly enjoy every aspect of this. And to get to do it again with my friends, with, you know, these songs that I wrote that I love is such a privilege i get that maybe more than i did when i was like 19 or 20 because when you're 19 or 20 you just move into the next thing right and you're sort of like doing what people tell you to do and going through the motions but now i'm sort of like this is awesome this is great
0: are you you're an. you were an intense songwriter uh birmingham let it rain dark horse which is my favorite let it rain my husband's gonna kill me but i have to tell you that's his anthem oh no! <laughs> yeah <laughs> When things get rough, he just blares that, and he has for years, so it's kind of... What's your husband's name? John. John! My man! (laughs) (laughs) You are an intense songwriter. You write viscerally, dramatically. Is that still you? I know you want to be lighter, but but what moves you what inspires you i mean birmingham was about a woman escaping an abusive relationship yeah you know what
2: what are your what are your topics what are your things now it's funny cuz the next There's one more single. And then the next single after this is a song called rainbows and gasoline, which is what they're calling the focus single on the record. And it too is a song about domestic violence, but it's from a completely different perspective. It's from the perspective of someone who knows the signs and is aware enough early enough in the relationship to bail basically. Um, those things have always fascinated I love storytelling. You know, I have a real Americana streak in me. I love people like Jason Isbell and Mary Gauthier and Sean Colvin. Was a, I was a huge Sean Colvin fan when I was coming up. But I also have a huge love of urban, you know, hip-hop music. And, and melding those two things, for me, has always been where I live. You know, one of the great parts of uh, having this kind of sabbatical was doing these shows gave me an opportunity to kind of figure out, like, what is the stuff that I really look forward to singing in the set? I love singing Birmingham. I love singing Dark Horse. And the reason I love those songs is because there's like a, there's a groove, let it rain. There's like a groove aspect to that stuff. And, you know, to me, the most important part of rock and roll is the roll, right? I think people have conflated rock and roll with rock and, and they're not the same. Rock is that, right? But there's like a groovy thing that happens. The Stones have it, the Beatles had it to a certain degree, but the Stones really have it. They really embody that kind of stuff. The basis of great rock and roll is blues music, which is where I came up from. So I understand that. And that's what I kind of gravitate naturally towards.
1: So it's quite different now. I mean, we talked about how, you know, race has become something that people are actually talking about these days, but that's been one big change in the music industry as in so many others, but, but also like the the music industry has really changed and I because you can get everything online. And, and so is it true that you only make money by going on the road? Like, <laughs>
2: yeah, I had this conversation with my mother last night because we were talking about something and she's like well, so how do these people make money? And I was like, oh, that's cute. You think that people make money like from streaming services. <laughs> I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> this is a conversation that's been going on for decades. Yeah, it's, uh, there are changes that have happened that are fantastic. And one of those changes is that the model has flipped. And I think uh, musical artists are much more in control of their own creative process, which is fantastic. Unfortunately, I think the side effect of that is that um, people have gotten used to getting things for free and we have valued not just music, but all forms of art to the point where every, everybody thinks they can do it and do it well. And everybody thinks, therefore, that it should be free. And I don't know what we do about that. But, you know, hopefully the conversation will turn to, you know, the proper, comp- the proper amount of compensation for people for doing the work that they do.
1: Well, you sold out a second time, I think, at Massey Hall. So I'm, yeah, so that's, that must feel really, really good after all these years. Oh, my goodness.
0: Speaking of Massey Hall, and this, uh, this uh, conversation is going to air later, uh, coinciding with your tour and, and the release. But, you know, as a Canadian, how do you feel about, about, uh, about Gordon Lightfoot? Yeah, because, you know, Birmingham was a hit for you in the States, but it was the only one. And and you know he he was considered one of the, the you know the, the bard of Canada, but he was really only known as a songwriter outside outside of this country, not as a singer or performer. And I wonder, you know, you were poised at one point to become an international hit. Elton John was singing your praises and so on. Are, is this, is Canada enough for you, Amanda?
2: I mean, you know, that, that's that's a dicey question because you know, that discounts a huge other part of the world. You know, there's uh, there are Asian markets, there's the European market, all of which we have toured extensively and done really well in. I think that we tend to focus on the United States because they're our neighbor and tradi- that's been the traditional model. You know, one of the things that I love about Canada, getting back to Gordon up for just a second, is that we have always embraced quirk. I love that about Canada. Like the Tragically Hip, Tragically Hip have done obviously really well outside of this country, but they're a Canadian band, right? And there are people like Gordon Lightfoot and the Tragically Hip, and I can't think of others, but they'll come to me. You know, that have done great in this country who are Blue Rodeo is another one. You know, I have American friends in the music business who say to me all the time, like, why isn't Blue Rodeo a bigger band, you know, south of the I don't know. I don't know. But I think one of the things is that we embrace quirk. Americans do that too, by the way. There are lots of American bands. That never make it out of the states ever. There are lots of uh, acts out of the UK that never make it out of the UK, and I think we focus too much on that. I think people focus too much on, do we have enough of a star system here? And are you know why aren't they why aren't we are they embracing us in you know Mississippi or I don't know. But I, I think people, f- and one of the things that is encouraging to me about this. The, sort of the flipping of the system and the fact that things are available everywhere is that people have a chance to kind of find stuff that maybe they didn't find before. You know,
1: we got to wrap up in a sec. And,
0: um, what
2: kind of conditioner do you use?
1: <laughs> <laughs> How long
2: exactly does it take? All of it, all the conditioner, all of it, all of it. <laughs> the whole bottle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. And <then> I'm good. <laughs> Amanda, such a pleasure to finally meet you honest to god i've been a, such a huge fan of yours from the get-go and will i'm sure we'll continue to be so so thank you for taking the time to talk to us thank
2: you
1: yeah and have fun on stage it's gonna it's gonna be great um yeah you gotta thank get the cool. mojo up but thanks guys keep
2: keep singing let it rain john absolutely i'll let <laughs> him know <laughs>
0: Thanks, Thanks Amanda. Amanda.
1: Yeah. We'll let you know when this is going real soon.
0: Yeah, it'll it's it's actually will air the week uh, of your appearances at Massey Hall. So it's June, whatever. So, yeah, we'll tie it all oh, together. Great. All right. Godspeed. Thank
1: you. <laughs> yeah. All the best. Nice T-shirt. Thanks, guys.
2: <laughs> Bye. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Well, look at how it all turned out. I hope she cheats on you with a basketball player. Oh, oh, yeah. uh, you feel real
0: lonely, baby, now we're not together. We say that about everybody, by the way. <laughs> One day we're going to come off, someone of will go, yeah, they're, they're, we were totally lying. But she was. She lovely. was uh,
1: <laughs> She was lovely. I mean, I've, I've heard her interviews. Well, there, there's a couple I'm lying. <laughs> so are you. <laughs> no, I do kind of like... Nearly everybody. Well, that's why we pick them, right? Because I don't think we pick anyone or call anyone a woman of ill repute if that's what they are. Um, that's what you are, Marine. But uh, <laughs> um, we like people who we have on this show for the most part, or we at least like a lot about yeah. them. Yeah,
0: and we like the more we we like the more after spending time with them. Yeah, and I think with her like
1: she I don't know. I've I've heard her talk about what happened before and 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 it must be difficult because everyone wants to know what happened. Why did you disappear for 20 years? But she went way deeper than that. She talked she talked about race. She talked about the music industry. She talked about about being an only child and and life. So it's uh yeah, it was uh and
0: and there were lots of chuckles. So it was She's very open. And yet, I know I was going to, one of the questions I was going to ask her is, you don't talk about your personal life. And I thought to myself, well, there may be a reason for that. Uh, but she doesn't. <laughs> she's very, very, she's one of very adept at being extremely open, but without going to any details about, I know she has a long term partner. That's all I know. Um, And I just, I just didn't go there because I didn't feel the need. I think
1: she should be a journalist. <laughs> so I actually, uh, I actually named my husband on a podcast. Yes, you did, which was like it was massive. I just, yeah, uh, yeah no, it's it's weird. I think I think people are protective about different things. But she's, uh, I don't know, it must be very very strange after 20 years to get back on the stage. I, I'm sure, you know, she said she did a couple of things in 2017, but uh, but yeah, and uh, yeah, and and she's she's shallow like you and me. She spends a lot of time on her hair.
0: <laughs> We've got a lot of hair to spend time on. All right, that was Amanda Marshall. Lovely to see you, Wendy. Talk soon. Talk soon.
2: (laughs) Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley, with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet
0: Belgraver.
1: I'm Andrea Askowitz.